Earlier this week, I went through my kids' backpacks. As I was hanging them up after school, I noticed that they seemed kind of heavy for a third grader and a kindergartner. We hadn't really been paying too much attention to the contents, aside from the daily signing of the binders and charging of the laptops. Well, if you've ever changed purses or briefcases or whatever kind of bag it is you carry around on a daily basis, you can imagine where this is going. A whole assortment of randomness was discovered in both backpacks. Crumpled papers in the bottom that were supposed to be signed and returned in October. Broken crayons, capless markers, a Ziploc baggie full of something squishy and weird, tiny plastic dinosaurs, money, rocks and sticks and wilted dandelions, a hoodie that had been lost since February. Over many weeks, stuff had accumulated in these backpacks without any of us really noticing. And little by little, the boy's daily load had grown quite a bit heavier. In our sermon series today, we're acknowledging this same reality in our own hearts and lives. That over time, there is stuff in our daily lives that when we leave it unattended, starts to weigh us down. But in the post-Easter season, we're particularly focused on the power of the risen Christ to remove that weight from our lives and to help us lighten up. When we can let go of the heavier things in life, we start to live in such a way that in turn lights up the world around us. We began in week one by talking about trading in doubt for delight. And then last week, Pastor Britton shared a beautiful message of exchanging our guilt for grace. And today, because I love alliteration, the sermon theme was going to be letting go of fear for forgiveness. But I couldn't get it to work. That wasn't the sermon that wanted to be written. So the wordsmith in me is dying just a little bit, but I have to sacrifice the symmetry because what kept surfacing as the thing that weighs us down wasn't fear, but anger. I came to terms with this trade out because in the end, fear and anger are deeply intertwined. Fear is often the primary emotion out of which anger is born. But I think it might be a little easier for us to first recognize our anger and where it is becoming too heavy for us to carry anymore. When I think about the heaviness in our world these days, it's not difficult to recognize the prevalence of anger all around us. I suspect you might agree. Anger has, in recent years, become the default of our public discourse. Just look at the news or the tone that many public officials take with one another. Consider what makes for good TV. We love a good fight on The Bachelor, don't we? And of course, this default trickles down all the way into our personal interactions, most notably through social media. We can just sort of react to things and hurl our angry or agitated words out into the universe. These patterns over time can become more and more embedded than we might even know. We get aggravated by coworkers, annoyed by our neighbors, angry at our spouse or our parents, frustrated by situations all around us. And when we add all that anger up, it gets pretty heavy. And whether we recognize it or not, we could use a little lightening up. 
Anger is a natural part of life. It's not inherently bad. We are all emotionally wired to experience anger. In fact, if you don't ever get angry, that might be another kind of problem altogether. But it's what we do with that anger that can be measured as good or bad. The writer of the letter to the Ephesians gets at the paradox of anger for us. They are writing to a new church about how Christians ought to conduct themselves as a community, how to negotiate differences and conflicts, how to reflect Christ in their life together. If you have a Bible nearby or if you want to open it up on your phone, I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 26, or we'll have it here for you on the screens as well. These verses almost feel a little contradictory at first. I'll read the whole passage, but then we're going to come back and deconstruct it a little. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. So the author starts by saying, be angry, and then ends by saying, stop being angry. Anger is good, and then anger is bad. Well, which is it? This is complicated. Can we have a little more direction here? Let's unpack it a little, because I think that truly, we naturally understand that both of these statements are true. That first verse, be angry without sinning, is a quote from the Old Testament. We find that same verse in Psalm 4, 4. But you'll notice a slightly different word from the Hebrew translation here. So be afraid and don't sin. Think hard about it in your bed and weep over it. We can see the, the parallel there. Be angry without sinning, so be afraid and don't sin. I love studying the original languages of these texts because they enrich our understanding of what the Bible is trying to say to us. So bear with me for a second while I get a little nerdy. You're probably starting to learn that this will happen with some regularity. In the psalm, the Hebrew word that we see there is afraid. And that word that is translated afraid in Hebrew is ragaz. Ragaz means all of these things, to be agitated, quiver, quake, be excited, perturbed. You can see why the English translation is afraid. Those are descriptions of what happens to us when we are afraid. But as I said at the beginning, fear and anger are closely related. These are also things that happen to us when we're angry. So when this verse then gets quoted later in Ephesians, we see that word angry instead. The New Testament was written in Greek, so the word in Ephesians 4.26 is orgizo. And orgizo is also a fascinating word. It means settled opposition. And it has a positive connotation when it originates in God, because God's orgizo is focused on the offense but it has a negative connotation when it originates from humans' more base instincts because humans tend to focus our anger on the offender. Okay, so those of you who are snoring, you can now wake back up. But what is most important for us to take from this linguistics lesson is this. Both orgizo and ragaz are words that are also used to describe the righteous anger of God. 
God has righteous anger, ragaz or gizo, over the destructive power of sin in the world. It's a settled opposition, a steady smoldering fire, not an explosion. It's a quivering, quaking anger, not an impulsive, raging violence. This is the kind of angry we are told to be, both in Psalms and Ephesians. When the right relationships that God desires for the world are being broken. When things become as they should not be. When people are oppressed and harmed by power. When systems of justice become unjust. When there is plenty for all, yet so many do not have enough. This is the kind of angry we see in Jesus when he famously turned over the tables in the temple. It wasn't just because they were selling stuff. It was because they were price gouging the poor to line the temple coffers or maybe their own pockets. The faithful worshipers couldn't enter the temple without a sacrifice, so the religious leaders jacked up the prices of a dove or a lamb. Jesus flipped his lid because of the injustice to the poor. This is the kind of angry we are experiencing right now around us and in us as our national conscience begs us to examine and change our systems that are designed to provide justice for all, which statistically and painfully fail to deliver justice for people who are not white and instead brings them disproportionate harm. There is goodness in anger when it fuels us to move toward justice and right relationships. Sometimes it is the impetus for a person to stand up for themselves and finally get out of an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's the catalyst that sparks social change around race and class and gender. Sometimes it unleashes the words that empower someone else to recognize this isn't right, we can do better. Be angry, the Psalms and Ephesians say, and this is the kind of angry they mean. Of course, that's not the end of the instruction. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. This idea about the sun setting on our anger, we hear that a lot, usually in marital advice, right? Don't go to bed still angry at each other. Try to resolve whatever the issue is, and, and that's fine. Maybe it's not always entirely doable or realistic, but, but that idiom isn't specifically meant for marriage. We find that same phrase over and over again in other wisdom writings of the times of the early church. It wasn't exclusively Christian. It was just common sense. Don't let the world spin too many times before you deal with your anger and work through it. If you hold on to it for too long, Ephesians says, you'll provide an opportunity for the devil. Other translations use the word foothold. You'll create conditions for that anger to take root and begin to change you inside. When it gets a foothold in our hearts, then we have a problem. That's where the juxtaposition of these verses comes in. Be angry in verse 26, but then stop being angry by verse 31. Don't hold on to it too long. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Anger is meant to be felt, then dealt with. It is not meant to be lived in. 
Anger is okay at first. As days pass, it begins to meld into our soul. We start getting angry about other things and we pile up a load of anger that we don't realize we're carrying. And before we know it, we move from being angry about certain things to being angry people. We don't even notice that it's happening. We become like this person in the exchange with the DMV lady. She says, do you wanna retake your photo? You look mad. I am mad, but you'll look mad on here for five years. I will still be mad in five years. I'll be honest, there are days that really could be me. When it isn't transformed into something else, anger takes root and turns into bitterness. Soon, anger becomes the defining way that we look at other people in the world. You might do a quick anger check here today. I'll give you a list of, of what I think might be signs that anger has had a chance to take a foothold. These are just some indicators that I notice in myself. Maybe you can relate to them or maybe you can think of others. But do you look at a situation and see the negative first? Is criticism your first inclination in the things that you read or in other people's ideas or thoughts? Are you irritable and impatient in general with the world? Do you justify your annoyance with a friend or a colleague by finding another person who feels the same way and then you just sort of feed off of each other's agitation? Have you stopped seeing people that you disagree with as nuanced and complex humans? Do you just look at them simply now, negatively? If any of these things have become status quo for you, there may be some room to lighten up and to let some anger go. Ephesians clearly says to feel the anger, but then to process it and allow it to move on. Let's not let it become our lens for this one precious life we have to live. Christ did not come so that we might be bitter. Fortunately, the final verse that we read today gives us the way to do that. It's not easy to simply let go of anger once it has become comfortable for us, but Ephesians suggests that we might be able to trade it in for some other dispositions instead. Verse 31 gives us three antidotes to anger. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other. In the same way God forgave you, in Christ. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. These are the tools we have at our disposal because of the love and the example of Christ. So first, kindness. In modern English, I, I sort of regret our tendency to equate kindness with niceness. We have sometimes ignored a lot of harm and injustice just for the sake of being nice. Kindness in this verse has a little more depth to it. The word here in Greek comes from krestos. And for the wine lovers among you, you'll find this particularly interesting. Krestos is also used in the Gospel of Luke to describe the nature of old wine. If you know a little bit about wine, you know something of the contrast between a new and an old vintage. You open a recent vintage of wine, it's bold, it's robust, it can strike your palate and your nose with force. But take an aged bottle, 10 or 15 years, and what has it had time to do? 
it has mellowed. It is not dull, but it is rich. It doesn't accost your taste buds, it enamors them. The wine has become more palatable and far more enjoyable. I think the writer of Ephesians here may be telling us politely to chill out a little in our treatment of others. Don't fly off the handle. Just take a breath. Be a bit more mellow. Be like an old wine. Or, as I've heard Pastor Chungho Kwan put it, don't react, respond. I think that is at the essence of this biblical understanding of kindness. The second tool Ephesians gives us is compassion. Be compassionate. Calm means with and passion means suffering. To have compassion for someone is to suffer with or to try and feel what it is that they are feeling. It's the origin of that old adage to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. When we can grasp a little bit of someone's experience, we remember to see them as a human struggling along in this world just like we are not merely as an object or a nuisance or an annoyance. Have you ever been around a child or a teenager and maybe just out of nowhere, they sort of erupt into a tantrum of some kind, blaming you for everything that's wrong in their life? It's easy to react, to respond to their anger with our own anger and defense, but in your finer moments, when you take a minute, you breathe and you listen, you ultimately discover that they're hurt by something else something that happened at school, their brother being mean, or frustration over something they can't figure out, their reaction to you doesn't really have much to do with you at all. They're struggling with something else. Being compassionate and listening to their suffering gives us better ways to respond. Side note, this isn't just true of children. This is also how grown-ups behave. People bring their stuff to us all the time. If we can mellow out long enough to listen through to their suffering, it changes how we respond to them. It doesn't make their behavior okay, and it doesn't mean that we ultimately have to agree with them, but it helps us understand them better. And it reasserts their humanity in our eyes. Be compassionate, feel with those who otherwise make you angry. And finally, be forgiving. This is the capstone of these three things that we can exchange for anger because it's the one that we have all first received. In Christ, God has forgiven us time and time again for our missteps and our mistakes, for the times we've wandered off and turned away, for our individual wrongdoings, and for our collective part in causing human brokenness in our world. God's forgiveness for us knows no bounds. Therefore, it is the action that we are called to in trading out our anger. Now, there could be a whole sermon series just on forgiveness. There probably will be sometime. But in short form today, forgiveness is the releasing of yourself and someone else from the power that they have held over you. Forgiveness took on a very real and practical form for us as a church recently, and I want to take a moment to share this piece of very good news. 
We, like many other employers, received a PPP loan early on in COVID. This was a huge relief in those early months because it allowed us to guarantee continued employment, both for our staff, also for our PDO and our preschool teachers during that uncertain season when so many employers were forced to make really hard decisions. We were able to be a blessing instead, even during the time that we were completely shut down. That loan allowed us to weather the storm, to remain financially stable throughout. But of course, as happens with loans, as time passed, it just sort of began to lurk out there in the realm of something we'll eventually need to deal with. It hovered with a sense of financial weight that took up mental and emotional and line item space. And then, the week after Easter, we got official word that the loan was forgiven. Gone. Done. Over. There is nothing to pay. It is wiped from the ledger, and the feelings of sheer glee from those who oversee our finances were palpable. People were skipping around the office. To be forgiven of something, even something as worldly and as concrete as a loan, is pure release. It is freedom. It creates endless space for other possibilities in our lives. And the same thing happens when we extend forgiveness to others. The end is not always the same. Forgiveness doesn't always end in restored and perfect relationships. But it does release us from the way that other people's behaviors have held us hostage or dominated our emotions. Sometimes forgiveness is letting go of a relationship altogether, one that has caused irreparable harm. To let it go is the mending that our hearts need. Other times, forgiveness is letting go of expectations we have in a relationship. It might change the nature of that relationship, but we let go of expecting someone to be who they aren't. And other times, forgiveness is restoration. It's the repairing of a breach between people that has existed for far too long. All of these ways of forgiving bring freedom into our lives and into the lives of others. They release the foothold that anger takes in our hearts. They create space for God to do something new. As we close, Take just a moment to close your eyes, to breathe in deeply. As you inhale and exhale, let that breath flow into the far reaches inside of you. Let it seek out and dislodge the anger that may have latched onto your heart, your gut, your mind, your inner being. Imagine all that God could fit into that space if you were to let the anger go. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness, love, delight, grace. How much more light would come to us and from us if we showed up less angry in the world? Will you pray with me? Forgiving, compassionate, kind God. You know our inmost being and all that we carry within. Where anger has taken a foothold and gives way to bitterness, weed it out. 
where anger compels us toward change, direct us. Where anger brings harm to those around us, forgive us. In your unending grace, give us the courage to leave behind what is weighing us down, trusting that you have lighter, life-giving loads for us to carry. In the name of Christ, our forgiver, our freedom. Amen.